Ephesians 4, 1-6 As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. For the last few weeks, we've paused here in Ephesians 4, 1-6 to to consider what this calling and, and living it out looks like. I'm going to spend one more week here because I want Ephesians 4, 3 to become a part of our church culture. I want our church to be experienced as a gathering of people rescued by Jesus, living with and serving each other in unity and harmony inside of God's love and shalom. Okay, let me start by saying this. One of the traps that you can fall into when it comes to discipleship is the trap of thinking that the active, engaged, growing Christian life is always additive. That is, you can fall into the trap of believing that the more godly actions and attitudes that you seek, that you pick up, that you take up and place in your discipleship backpack, as it were, the more of these you add into your life, the deeper and richer your walk with Christ will be. And there's a lot of truth there because the language of putting on or clothing ourselves or adding to our faith is regularly used in the New Testament to show us that the Christian life isn't simply about being just forgiven, right? Christians aren't just forgiven so they can continue to live life in the status quo of being dead in sin. We are saved out of a life of sinful self-centeredness into a new life, into a new identity in Christ. And so we have a role to play in learning how to grow into spiritual maturity and spiritual depth of Christ-like character. So for example, 2 Peter 1 says, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. Colossians 3.12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Ephesians 4.24, which we'll get to in a few weeks, says, Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And Ephesians 6.11, which might be the most famous putting on verse of the New Testament, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So as you can imagine, I don't want to minimize the emphasis that the Bible places on this part of discipleship to Jesus. But I did think a lot this week about how we can be conditioned within the church or just because of the broader culture to read the command to make every effort as being additive, meaning we have to do more and pick up more and stuff more good things into our discipleship backpack. We need to simply accumulate more habits. I want to share why that sometimes might be unwise and unhelpful. Let's go to an example. If I want to become a more patient person, I may be tempted to try harder to say, I'm going to become a more patient person. I'm focused on that. I'm going to pick up that virtue. I might seriously desire to grow in that character trait. But attempting to grow in patience is really, really hard. 
when I'm holding on to the expectation that other people should respond in the way that I want on the timeline that I've set, right? If I'm holding on to sinful, ungracious expectations towards other people, and at the same time trying to pick up the virtue of patience, it's not going to happen. I can try and be more patient, but if the root of my impatience is something that I'm actually holding on to, then willpower and resolve are only going to get me so far. So instead of just simply trying to add patience to our lives, why not learn to let go of constricting expectations and actually create the conditions that would allow God's spirit to birth more patience within me? Do you, do you see the difference? It, it's fairly substantial. God's word is clear. We are to be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. But we may, what may not be as clear is that sometimes the best way to grow in these virtues is not to simply strive to add them to your life, but to ask yourself, what am I holding on to that interferes with the Holy Spirit's work to bring them into fruition in my life? I have seen a pattern emerge again and again in my own walk with Christ. Before I can grow into something, I often have to let go of something. Before I can grow into something, I often have to let go of something. To that end, I'd like us to think about that phrase, to make every effort through the lens of not adding more or doing more, but letting go. What does it look like to make every effort to let go of that which is interfering in the cultivation of patience and gentleness and forbearance. Let's look at the first command. Be completely humble. Until I let go of self-exaltation, I'm not going to be able to pick up the virtue of humility. Right? If, if I am holding on to an inflated sense of self-importance and a desire, a hunger and a thirst to be honored and recognized and esteemed and celebrated by others and to be seen as superior to other people, it will be impossible for me to grow in humility. Now, let me make this clear. If you are hearing my voice, you are important. You are important to God, whether or not you're a Christian or not, because every human being is made in the image of God. And that means... Every human being is designed by God to be something great. You are designed to be an image bearer that reflects God's glory and goodness into the world. However, because of sin, we have sensed that high calling that exists for humans alone, but we have that desire has become, that calling has been distorted into a desire to elevate ourselves above each other and even God. So sin has distorted this healthy sense of I'm important to I should be more important or I am more important than others. Sin has made us self-centered. Sin has made us self-seeking, self-glorifying. If you want to be a humble person, like a truly humble person, then you have to let go of that desire to achieve honor and recognition and acclaim from other people. 
At every turn, the Christian faith is an assault on our self-glorifying agendas. Jesus even says these words in Matthew 23. He's speaking to his inner circle, the 12 apostles. They're designated. They have a special task for him. They might have been very easy for them to see themselves as um, Jesus' um, Navy SEALs team, as it were, the elite of the elite. They must be so spiritual, so important. Jesus is going to confer on them all kinds of honorific titles so that they can glory in the, the fact that they're part of the 12. But Jesus says, you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And don't call anyone on earth father because you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. We are important to God. But we are not to seek importance. We're not the center, God is. And until I let go of self-importance and self, the self-exalting temptation that may be at play in my life, I will not be able to pick up the virtue of genuine humility, which is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less, having a proper self-understanding, but being absorbed not with yourself and your own issues, but with bringing glory to God and blessing and love to your neighbor. Number two, be gentle. Until I let go of harshness towards others, I'm not going to be able to pick up the virtue of gentleness. See, if we hold on to harshness in our dealings with others, it's going to be impossible to grow in gentleness. Now, there are a lot of things that contribute to the hostility and harshness that may exist in our dealings with other people. Some of, some of us might just be disposed to that by temperament. For some people, harshness is a reaction to the wounds that we've endured earlier in our lives. Like an injured animal, our harshness is designed to keep others at bay and to make sure that we don't get hurt again. And you might have good reasons for the anger that you hold on to. You might have good reasons for the resentment that drives your hostile attitude. You may have good reasons for the bitterness that uh, you may have good reasons for the bitterness that is literally embittering your soul and shrinking your soul. You may have good reasons why your harshness or tough love works for you in the context of your marriage or your relationships with your children or your coworkers. But I want you to know that if you can't let go of this harshness, you will forever interfere with the Holy Spirit's desire to cultivate gentleness in you and through you. For some of us, the harshness emerges because we simply believe we've developed a habit. We have, our hearts have been predisposed to be hard and harsh towards ourselves. And so we're trying so hard to be good and to be right and to be perfect, to be better and to do better but because we're continually confronted with our own failings and our imperfections, that comes out in other people. And if that's you, then Jesus offers you something liberating and something truly di uh, different. To a, in a context where Jesus was invited, uh, where, where in, in a religious context, where people 
sometimes directly, often indirectly, were encouraged towards a harshness towards themselves, towards holding fastidiously to every jot and tittle of the law and trying to be better and trying to do better and to do more for God and to saw their faith and as faithfully loving God as being adding more and more and more and more and more and more good and exhausting themselves in the process. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Unless I let go of harshness towards others, I won't be able to pick up the virtue of gentleness. Number three is patience. We're commanded to be patient. But until I let go of an agenda that gives no room for margins of imperfection, I'm not going to be able to pick up the virtue of patience. Right? If I live with a tyrannical agenda for my day, for my month, for my life, for my expectations of other people, this is what my life is supposed to look like. These are the marks I need to hit through today and this week and this month and this year because I have a five-year plan that leads into a 15-year plan. If I have that kind of precision around my life, such that the, there are no margins of imperfection, there's no give for my own imperfections, there's no give for the imperfections of other people who are not going to be able to accommodate and fulfill my schedule on my terms, it's going to be impossible to become patient. Right? Like I have found the more tightly I schedule my days, even with good things, the more likely I am to experience bursts of impatience, right? Because the more tightly I schedule my agenda, the more explosive my negative reaction is, even if there's a slight deviation. What might have been a minor frustration becomes a major frustration. Covenant theologian Klein Snodgrass writes the following. All of us have a sense of timing about when events should happen, but the problem is that that rarely agrees with anyone else's sense of timing. Our society has taught us to want it now and expect to get it now, and our idea that we should not have to wait on anything or anyone is just another form of self-centeredness. And so if our plans and agendas for our lives become too precise, they can actually become fuel for a perpetual state of impatience because no one else is gonna be able to fulfill them on our terms or our timeline, right? There's no give, there's no margins between our idealized day or life and what actually is. I was thinking about this idea of margins and needing to give your life space to have, you know, to create margins for imperfections in yourself and other people. And I thought about that uh, stand-up bit by Brian Regan on Pop-Tarts. I don't know if you, can, I don't know if you guys know it. <clears throat> so he, you know, basically, I can't do it like him. He, he's amazing at what he does. But he draws attention to the fact that Pop-Tarts have two different directions for preparation. Right? There's toasting. But there's also microwaving. Right? Isn't that crazy? There are microwavable directions for Pop-Tarts. And his point is, you know, at one point in his bit, he says, we need directions on how to microwave Pop-Tarts 
You mean for those who don't have time to toast them? How long does it take to toast a Pop-Tart? A minute? If you want it dark? People don't have that kind of time? And then he says, if you need to zap fry your Pop-Tarts before you head out the door, you might want to loosen up your schedule. The Lord doesn't have a microwave attitude when it comes to dealing with us. He is patient, sometimes to the point of seeming to be even inactive. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Until I let go of an agenda and personal schedule that gives no room for margins of imperfection, I won't be able to pick up the virtue of patience. And lastly, forbearance, or the ability to endure with or put up with one another. Until I let go of the idea that people exist for my benefit, I will not be able to pick up the virtue of forbearance. Right? If you go into your relationships, assuming it's the other person's job to invest in you, forbearance will not be possible. And the reason is because forbearance, which is the ability to put up with someone else, can only be offered by someone who has decided to choose the way of love instead of expecting to be on the receiving end of love all the time, right? I mean, how can you put up with someone if you expect them to be doing the heavy lifting of love and care and all they seem to be doing is just demanding from you and, and they are the ones who are self-seeking? How can you bear with someone if the reason why they exist is to bear with you, but they're not doing it? And why waste your time on people with issues anyways? Because shouldn't we just see all of our relationships as transactional, right? Life's too short to invest in those who don't build you up and who, who don't offer a substantial return on investment. But of course, thinking like this is completely antithetical to the way of Jesus. And people who go into relationships presuming and assuming that other people exist to benefit them and operating within this quid pro quo transactional analysis forget something really, really important. And that is all of us at times in our lives have been a burden and pain to someone else. Much of why we have friendships in our lives is because those are the, those are the people who have decided to lovingly forbear us and to put up with us. And yet that forbearance gave us a platform to grow and mature. Many of the good things in your life are the result of many people along the way forbearing with you. People who forsook their own rights and didn't just dump you because you weren't benefiting them, but instead they sought to love you even when it wasn't easy or convenient or efficient or fruitful. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus actually calls us into relationships where we can't gain anything. At a house of a prominent Pharisee, full of religious leaders who are stacking their relational deck of people who are connected socially, politically, uh, religiously, and offered all kinds of return on investments for their um, transactional way of building and sustaining relationships, Jesus says to the host of this party, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends. 
Don't invite your brothers and sisters. Don't invite your relatives or your rich neighbors because if you do, they might invite you back and so you will be repaid. And just pause there and we think, well, yeah, I mean, isn't that the benefit of having connected friends is that you, quote unquote, love them and they love you back? There's a transaction, but Jesus says, no, I want you to go beyond that. Because that's a worldly way of interacting where we're seeing other people as something to get something out of. He says this in verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Because although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus was surrounded by religious leaders who had intentionally surrounded themselves with other rich, prominent, powerful people while pushing aside those who required forbearance, those who were an inconvenience to these important leaders' lives. But Jesus says, that's not a picture of the kingdom. That's not how the kingdom of God works. I want you to go in a different direction. I want you to dismantle the view that other people exist for your benefit by creating relationships in your life that offer no return on investment, simply opportunities to love and serve and forbear. Klein Snodgrass, again, he writes, bearing with one another is difficult. Bearing with one another in love is what friends and family should do. And that means tolerating activities, choices, and inconveniences that we don't like. No one knows that better than a parent of a teenager. Putting up with and love is also what churches should do. And it may well mean tolerating music or worship styles that are not fully satisfying. It may mean going through a trying time with another person that demands more from us than we would have liked. It may mean loving people who will never fully appreciate your sacrifice of time, energy, and money on their behalf. But that is our calling. And our obedience in this area will be seen and rewarded by God. Until I let go of the idea that people exist for my benefit, I won't be able to pick up the virtue of forbearance. You know, that challenge Jesus issues, the religious leaders, to instead of inviting the wealthy and the well-connected, to invite the poor and the crippled and the lame, he's doing that intentionally, not just simply to change our expectations of the nature of relationships, but it actually goes deeper than that because he wants to show us through our participation in that kind of activity that this is what the gospel story is all about, right? This is the key. Growth in all these areas, I think, can only be really established and sustained when you understand that that is exactly what Jesus did for us. That's why we're being asked to extend those attitudes and postures towards other, towards other people, right? The gospel is the story of this high king who calls the lowest and most unworthy people, not because they had all kinds of benefits for him, but simply because of his desire to bless and redeem them at great cost to himself. The gospel is the story of a king who in humility lowers himself in the incarnation. He becomes a human being. He lets go of his entitlements of divinity and then eventually allows himself to even be humiliated on the cross. Why? 
in order to save his enemies. The gospel is a story about a king who guides and leads his people through gentleness. It's the proclamation of a king who redeems and restores with patience. And it's a story of a king who puts up with the inconsistent, half-hearted, imperfect, immature wanderings of his people. And that includes you and I. And so until I begin to understand what God has done for me in Christ, what we shorthand call the gospel, I won't be able to let go of that which divides and disrupts. And so take time to reflect on the gospel, to reflect on the humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance of Jesus towards you, not for his sake, but for yours. And let it melt and remake your heart so that you can begin to extend that kind of love to those around you.